Why don't you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 4. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 4. We have been spending uh, the last several weeks um, looking at the, the temptations of Jesus. Um, the three times that Satan comes to tempt Jesus. And, and as we begin this particular third time, you're like, you spent three weeks going through Matthew 1 and 2, and now you're spending three weeks and 11 verses. Why? Why are we spending so much time here? The world is chaotic. Did you know that yet? We faced a triple threat in this last year. A triple threat of a pandemic, of racial instability and injustice, and political division. And all three of those continue to move on in different ways. Like, there is incredible evil out there. I don't have to prove that to you. I don't think I have to even demonstrate that to you. That there is incredible evil out in the world. Evil is a presence danger. It is everywhere around us. And the reason it's real is because the devil is real. He is behind all the powers of this world seeking to destroy the kingdom of Christ. But one of the things I hope that has happened in all of us is as we look at that triple threat of evil out there, of, of the pandemic and the racial injustice and the political division, I hope what that has done is it has revealed the evil not just out there, but where? In here. In the church. In us. There is a power of evil at work, not just out there, but in ourselves as well. And what the temptations of Jesus actually do is they demonstrate the reality of that evil, but it also highlights the security and the victory that is ours in that evil's presence. And so this morning as we focus on that last temptation. Pastor Nate did a great job introducing a couple weeks ago on a video on our fifth Sunday scattered gathering, and we're going to review a little bit of what he talked about last week of how he did a great job explaining those first two temptations. We're going to look specifically at that third temptation in more detail this morning, but I have three points I want to dig in with you and unpack with you this morning from Matthew chapter 4. As I get, as we, Nate and I have joked, this is my chance to speak on the temptations. And I want to show us that there is, number one, a real enemy. Number two, these are real temptations. And number three, there's real victory. There's real evil. There's real temptations. And there's real victory. Jesus, help us this morning to see the victory that we have in you. Not in our efforts, not in our actions, but our victory is that we belong to you. We are united to you. And we'll give you praise 
for the Spirit's work in showing us that Jesus is our victory. In Jesus' name, amen. Number one, there's a real enemy. This scene is a fierce showdown between the present ruler of the world, Satan, and the up-and-coming ruler of the world, Jesus. This scene is a genuine showdown. It is a genuine battle. And although this scene is not as climactic as the cross, like when we talk about Jesus and his victory over Satan, the first place we normally go to is where? At the cross, right? And if you've been at Redemption Church, we believe that at the cross, Jesus Christ destroyed and put down the powers of sin, Satan, and death. And all of that is true, but, but what this scene here is, is it's not just what I want to say like, we'll come to this. It's not just this. It's just not a threefold temp, temp way to overcome temptation. Does that make sense? Like, this isn't, Matthew didn't write this just to show us how to overcome temptation. He wrote this to show us that very early on in Jesus' ministry, he is taking on the ruler of the world's. Without this initial battle, without this initial victory of this battle, there is no final victory of the war over Satan. Forgive me, but this is like the Goblet of Fire. When Harry Potter touches the, the, the turnkey and he goes into the graveyard and for the very first time, except when he's a baby, I know, he actually battles Lord Voldemort. If you, if, you, if you watch the movies or have read the books, this is like the first time that they are actually doing battle. Here is the ruler of this world, Satan, coming to the Son of God who has just been baptized and identified as beloved by the Father, and he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And here is this epic battle, the first time that these two powers are going against each other. I'm horrible with comic book movies. But this is a constant theme throughout all literature, that when there is this evil ruler and then there's this new ruler rising, there's always these initial times that they come together, right? And here is Jesus for the first time as this beloved son coming to do battle with Satan. And when we talk about doing battle with Satan, because we believe Jesus is real, I think we should believe that the devil is real. Sometimes it may be hard for us to believe that there is a personal, supernatural being, the personification of evil, if you will, a real person, a real being named Satan. Okay, anyone know what the word Satan means? The accuser. Okay, and this is what the scriptures call him. He is the accuser. This is why we call him the Satan, the accuser. And there is, as we can see in our story, in our history, in the world, as you study history, there is an opposing kingdom of evil that is personified by fear and pride and hates. 
And all of these evils, yes, they are very complicated in how they all work together. And, and as we deal with this issue of racial reconciliation, we see there's not only personal, but there are systems put in place throughout history. And how evil works itself out is very webbed and weaving and hard to figure out. But underneath all of that chaos is there's an intelligence. Underneath all of that webbing and weaving of all of the evils and how it works itself out through human history, underneath all of that is a being, a real intelligent being. So, for example, if you think that all that was behind the Holocaust was Hitler, or if you think that behind, the only thing behind slavery is economics and racism, or if you think that behind your addiction is nothing more than poor parenting, I think you're being a little bit naive. You're not understanding the depths, the reality that there is a real supernatural intelligence that is underneath all of that complicated evil and how it works itself out. I think it's a little bit naive. Personally, I think it's naive and superficial to write off the devil. Logically, it's naive. Because if you believe in God, which most people do, you should believe in the devil. Why is it so crazy to believe that there's this supernatural good without there being a supernatural evil? It is arbitrary to believe in one and not the other. So if you believe in a, in a God, and maybe you're not even a Christian, maybe you just believe in this benevolent good, is it so crazy to believe there's the opposite of that? That just as you can look out in the world and see justice and see love that would be personified by this benevolent being, which the scriptures would call God or Yahweh or Jesus, can it also not be true that when you look out at the world that underneath all of that evil is this evil supernatural being that the scriptures define as the accuser, as the devil, the adversary? So I think logically it's naive if you believe in God to reject the devil, We've already mentioned this, but empirically, like when you just look out at the world and you ask yourself, what do you see? Is there more evidence for a supernatural good or is there more evidence for supernatural evil? And thing is, you just look around as you touch things, as you experience things, as you empirically look out at the world, you would see that what's behind all of these evils is a supernatural being who is underneath all of it. In fact, you have a very low-level understanding of human nature. You have a very low uh, view of humanity to believe that without a supernatural evil underneath all of this, that we are capable of such depths without any help. Does that make sense? Like, if you believe there's no devil, if there's no evil, there's no real present uh, intelligence underneath all of it, then you have such a low view of humanity that we can actually produce all on our own people like Hitler and Stalin. So I think logically, empirically, but also theologically. This idea of the banishment of Satan and hell and evil is a growing thing within Christianity, by the way. This isn't just out there. This denial of hell, this denial of a true, real devil is actually beginning to invade the church. And, and theologically, what I want to say is this, that is 
that if we take Jesus' word on anything, we should take his word on what? Everything. In the sense that this, the things that Jesus claimed, so the things that he actually taught, and as we study the book of Matthew, he made some extraordinary claims. And if you take all of those claims and you only believe some and not others, why? You know, C.S. Lewis has made this case, and I think it's pretty well clear in my mind, that Jesus was either a lunatic who just made a bunch of crazy claims that he's the Son of God and he can take away sins and he can do all of these amazing things. He could be a lunatic. Or he could be a liar. And he's just like sane in his mind, but he's just lying about all these things. Or he is actually Lord. Like he is one of those three things. He is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. And if he is actually Lord then if we take one thing he says, we take everything he says. And if he says that there is a real supernatural being called the devil who led, was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to do business with him, there is a real supernatural intelligence underneath all of the complicated evil that has existed in human history. And I want you to know, church, that that supernatural intelligence being who the scriptures call the devil, the Satan, he is at work in this church. He's not just at work in Washington, D.C. He's at work right here. He is seeking to destroy our faith, to destroy our love for one another, to destroy our unity that we have in Jesus by his spirits. C.S. Lewis has also, I don't know if you've ever read Screw Tape Letters or some of these things that C.S. Lewis has read. I would encourage you to, they're interesting to read about, um, especially Screw Tape Letters. It's from, the person, it's from the standpoint of Satan and his demons and how he would trick Christians. But C.S. Lewis also goes on when he talks about devils and Satans and demons. He says the church usually falls in one or two camps. One camp is to believe that Satan is behind everything. You know what I mean? Like, he's behind every door. Every sin you committed, Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. Satan made me do it. Or Satan's there, and he's there, and he's there. And so Satan is all-encompassing for some people on one side. But then there's other people on the other side who totally forget and don't live in light of an evil supernatural intelligence that is actually behind everything. Okay, my background, I came from this side. Satan was just there to make sure that I was tempted to eat my mom's chocolate chip cookie that she said not to eat, right? Like he's just there knocking on my door like the typical uh, cartoon. He's sitting there on my shoulder saying, eat the cookie, eat the cookie, take the cookie. And so that's the only thing in a sense that, that Satan was there is just to tempt me to do wrong. There wasn't this understanding that this broad power of Satan at work and him doing... He, Satan is a very powerful being, by the way, church. He has power. He can disguise himself as an angel of light. Isn't that insane? That people throughout history have actually thought they've encountered angelic beings and they've actually encountered Satan himself. 
And I think we need to, in a sense, kind of not forget about Satan and not think Satan is everywhere, but come to this reality that Satan is at work. And one of the main themes throughout the book of Matthew is Jesus casting out demons. Jesus sending demons into pigs. Jesus sending demons places. Like, this isn't a one-time event. This is like, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes into this showdown with the present rule of the world. He declares his victory over him by not giving in to his temptations. And we're going to see that that victory over him continues throughout this book. That Satan is a real supernatural being who is underneath all the complicated evil that we see and have experienced and read about in our worlds. So don't be confused. There's a real evil out there. Number two, these are also real temptations. If you're like me, it's sometimes hard to see and relate to these temptations, right? <laughs> Even when I was studying these again, I'm like, these are just crazy temptations. When's the last time Satan said to you, turn these stones into bread? Any of you tempted this week to pull out your Harry Potter wand and turn some vegetables into, you know, some chocolate, yeah, to M&M's. Any of you tempted to do that this week? No, probably not. How many of you were tempted to jump down from a huge building? Kids? Yes. <laughs> if you're a kid, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like, my kids, in the back of our house, there's this, um, in our big room that the boys have now, the kids want to, like, run onto this roof and try to jump into our pool. I'm like, no thanks. No. But other than that, I don't know why we'd ever be tempted to jump off a building. So it's like we, we look at these temptations and they're very strange, aren't they? And I just want to review what Pastor Nate did a great job last week. I just want to review again to help us set the stage for this third temptation. That in temptation one, Jesus is being tempted to turn stones into bread. And, and why is that so crazy? Well, Jesus is reliving the history of Israel. This is like the manna in the wilderness. God had a purpose for the nation of Israel, and that was to be a kingdom of priests, so all the nations would come to be with God and to know God and to experience the power and the presence of Yahweh. And yet, because of their sin, they could never actually be that light to the nations. They could never be the kingdom of priests. And one of the ways we see that they kept falling and faltering is they were complaining about what God was doing for them. And so in Matthew, if you have your Bibles open, we look at the first temptation. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Jesus' response comes from Deuteronomy. By the way, I want you to know that every one of Jesus' response comes from Deuteronomy 6, 7, and 8. And he says, Man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus' reply is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 8, which comes in Deuteronomy chapter 8 as a section, a passage of Scripture, in which God is confronting and challenging Israel to remember how he had taken care of them in the wilderness by giving them manna. Yet God says, the greater gift is not my manna that I give you. My greater gift is that I am giving you my law, my commands, my teaching. 
And so what Jesus is actually being tempted to do is to put his trust in himself and to satisfy his own physical appetites rather than put his trust in God and what God has actually said. Now, how many of you have that temptation every day of your life? To put your trust in what God wants you to do or to put your trust in what you think is right and what will satisfy you. Transition, or sorry, temptation number two. Jump from the temple. What is Jesus being tempted here? Jesus, the man, when he's being tempted to jump from the temple, is being tempted to what every one of us wants. No matter how old you are, no matter what your life has been like, the human soul is on a quest to find safety and love. Jesus wanted what every son and daughter wants, to be safe and to be loved. And so to jump off of the temple is to prove that God would actually take care of him, that God would actually love him. Now, is it wrong to want to be loved, to feel safe? No, in fact, that's the role of ours as parents, is to provide this love that we've received from God the Father and show that to our kids and to provide this safety. But what was wrong was to put God to the test. This is going back to Israel again when there was no water and they were like putting God to the test saying, we just should go back to Egypt. God, are you going to give us any water? And Israel failed the test at a place in the wilderness called Massah. And Jesus is reliving that experience here, but rather than test God, he just believes that he is the Son of God and loved. Now, I think that makes a whole lot more sense with us. How many of us want to test God and make sure that God loves us? How many of you want to be Gideon? Put the fleece out there. I want everything to be wet all around it and the fleece to be dry. And you wake up the next day and you're like, oh, God, you did it. I still don't believe you. Let's do it again, but the opposite way. Rather than by faith believing that your union with Jesus makes you a beloved son or daughter. And so Jesus responds, don't put God to the test. Now this week, the third temptation is this, bow down and worship me. This one seems a little bit more close to home. Does that make sense? Like, we can see how this would be a temptation. But I also think it's a little bit strange because I don't know that Satan came to you this week and very explicitly said, bow down to me right now. Maybe he did. Anyone have Satan tempt you this week to bow down to him? Like explicitly? We see something of a more believable temptation, something that comes home a little bit more that we could actually, you know, resonate with. And yet none of us, probably this week, were tempted by Satan to literally bow down to him. But he has tempted us with the second half of that. Bow down to me and I will give you what? Everything you can see. All the kingdoms of the world will be yours. Bow down to Satan. Satan, in a sense, is saying this to Jesus. You, Jesus, 
Yield your allegiance. Give me your allegiance. Put your trust in me, and I will give you all the kingdoms, the power, and the wealth in the worlds. What is Satan offering Jesus here? Interesting, Satan is offering Jesus the same thing that God the Father is offering Jesus. They're both offering Jesus the same thing. Like in the Old Testament, in Psalm chapter 2, it describes the Son as the Son who will rule over the nations. Or 2 Samuel chapter 7, that the descendant of David, who is Jesus, will be given an everlasting throne, an everlasting house, and an everlasting dynasty. Catch this. What Satan is offering Jesus is the same thing that God is offering Jesus. To have all the powers and the wealth that this world has. So what's the difference? Satan is offering it to Jesus without going to the cross. He is offering a kingdom with no pain and no suffering. One commentator goes as far as to say this, Satan was not just trying to tempt Jesus to bow down to him, he was attempting to adopt Jesus. Satan in all three roles of the temptations, is playing the role of the Father, first in providing for Jesus as a son, then in protecting the son, and now in granting an inheritance. Satan is being like God the Father and trying to adopt him and saying, just as God the Father is saying to Jesus, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world, Satan is saying, I will do that too. And yet it's without the suffering. It is the glory without the pain. It is the, the promised son of the Old Testament without being the suffering servants. Now, how many of you would take the easy way out? Jesus responds once again from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what does he say? We're going to get into this as we study um, one of the more exciting things for me over the last couple of years and as we go into the book of Matthew is we look at how Jesus dealt with demons and how he deals with Satan. What does he say? He just says what? Get away from me. There's not this long diatribe. There's not like this thing he has to read. He's just like, get away from me. Because God has told us that we worship the Lord our God and serve him only in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Once more, Jesus takes on the role of Israel, that God, the Father, is a jealous God, and he will punish Israel severely if they commit idolatry. And he's reminding them not to go after the golden calf like they did in Exodus 32, but now as they go into the promised land, to not run after the idols of Canaan and all the people there, but to continue to worship God and serve him only. And so God is, sorry, Jesus is being tempted to have everything that God the Father had promised him, yet without the suffering. And we are a lot like, as a nation, this temptation. We want the kingdom without the king. This is what it means to live in a post-Christian culture, is to live in a society that wants all the blessings of the kingdom without submission to the king. We could run through all these things. We all want racial reconciliation. We all want love for the marginalized. We want freedom from disease. We want prosperity for all. We want leaders who are just. 
We want all of those amazing benefits of the kingdom, but you know what we don't want? To worship God and serve Him only. We reject His ethic in ways that don't appear beneficial to us. If that doesn't fit my paradigm, and that doesn't fit what I think is right, then it must not be right. So we reject his sexual ethics. We reject his forgiveness ethic. We reject his love for the marginalized ethic. We reject his rule over our lives because we want the easy streets. We want the money without the work. One of my kids, I won't tell you who it is, we had this conversation just this past week. We were, I asked them, like, what do you want to do when you get older? I'm like, I don't know. I just want a lot of money. Well, that's crazy. That's so weird. You just don't know what to do. You want a lot of money. And I had to remind her, like, even the people that, most of the people that you know who are rich, they put in a lot of work. It doesn't just come. And yet this temptation is just over and over inherent when all of us, that we just want the kingdom and not the king. We want the kingdoms of the world and we don't want the suffering. What is your kingdom of the worlds? What is Satan offering you that if you could have it, that if you could possess it, that if you could attain it, it would cause you to actually turn from God and be adopted by the devil? See, I think that's a real powerful temptation that all of us face every day. And so how do we fight against this temptation? Well, number three, there's real victory. There's real victory. See, Satan is offering us something that if we possess it, then we will be satisfied. We will be okay. And before we look at how we gain victory in this temptation, let's review the temptations and see how Satan was actually tempting Jesus. I think I have on the screen for you, temptation number one, Jesus was being tempted to to find his identity in what he did. Do I have that up there for you? Yes. Satan comes after us in three ways, and he did it in the Garden of Eden. I'm not going to go through all these parallels, but if you want to, I can give them to you later. He tempted Adam and Eve in these three ways. He tempted Israel in these three ways. He tempted Jesus in these three ways. And guess how he tempts us? In these three ways. To find our identity not in being beloved sons and daughters of the living God, but to find our identity in what we do, in what we are before others, and what we have. There's a performance trap that I am what I do, that I can turn stones into bread, that is what I have done, and I find satisfaction in what I do. Or in popularity, I am what others think of me, and and Jesus wanting to test the Father to show him how much he loved by jumping off the temple. But today, we're looking at I am what I have. Most of us, Reject the phrase, I remember as a kid, you ever, I don't, this isn't popular anymore. Anyone like me, like, have to sell posters when you're a kid in school? Like, you took like a little thing home and you did like a little uh, fundraiser, no one? All right. Well, there's a little Garfield poster that we had in this thing, and it said Garfield's like in this mansion, and anyone remember who Garfield is? I'm like, now I'm dating everyone. Everyone's like, what are you talking about? Okay, he's a little orange cranky cat, all right? And, and he, he's like in front of this mansion, and he's like in this like Lamborghini car, and on the top of it, it just, this is like ingrained in my mind. I don't know why I'll never forget it. It says, whoever dies with the most toys wins. 
Now, we know that that's not true, right? We'd all reject that outrightly. But how many of us really deeply believe that I am what I have, that if I have something, I will be something? If I have a set number of books, I will be a good pastor. If I have this position, I will be something. If I have this much money, if I can have this house, if I can have this trip. See, we find our identity in what we have as humans. It is, if we can just acknowledge it, that this is something we fight on a daily basis. So how do we find real victory over a real enemy with a real temptation? Number one, we need to stop and realize that Satan can never deliver what he promises. Satan never delivers what he promises. If Jesus was adopted by Satan, and he had all the powers and the kingdoms of this world, would he find safety and love and security that he would find in God the Father? No, because Satan would always be using him. Satan would always be deceiving him, always be tricking him. There is only one God that if you get him can fully satisfy you. And there's only one God that if you fail him will actually forgive you. It's just good to be reminded that when Satan tempts us to define our identity and what we have, it's good to be reminded that he can never actually deliver what he promises. You can have that trip, you can have that house, you can have that amount of money, and guess what your life is going to be? Still miserable. Because your life is not determined by the quantity and the, qual- the things that you have. Your life is determined by the type of relationships that you have. I don't know, I I do this regularly, but it is just true for me that I want all the latest Apple products in the world. And if I have all of them, it will just give me this internal sense that I have something. Now, when we are like me and identify with what we have, and this makes me this type of person it often leads us to live in shame. It causes us to live in anxiety. We're constantly wondering if this is ever going to be taken from us. We're constantly wondering if we have enough. We're constantly wondering if we're good enough. And and the reality is that when we come and see that Satan can never give you what he promises, it just sets a stage to be reminded of the one who is actually a liar. So number one is we find real victory. Just remember that Satan can never deliver what he promises. Number two, recognize that you already possess everything. What do you mean I already possess everything? Church, you already possess everything. Let me give you a couple verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think I have this on the screen for you. So, uh, Paul, I'm not going to go into the whole context, but Paul is debating about the church splitting up between John MacArthur, John Piper, and Tim Keller of their day. And he says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether you belong to Paulus, Paul, or Cephas, 
or the world or life or death or the present and the future, all the things are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Romans 8.32 says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with Jesus, graciously give us what? Church, Paul is saying twice, the church of Rome and the church of Corinth, you already possess everything. Would that change the way you look at your identity of you are what you have? That in Jesus, you already have everything. Someone in your mind, think to yourself, what do I have in Jesus that I think I need to find elsewhere? Do you already have all the riches of God? Paul would say, yes, in Jesus, you already have all the wealth you could ever have. You have everything you could ever have. You are promised because of Jesus that you already possess everything. You don't have to find it. You don't have to achieve it. You don't have to buy it. By faith, church, Jesus has already given you everything. Number three, we come to recognize that Jesus is our victory. As we look at these temptations, as good as it is for us to look at different ways to overcome Satan and how he tempts us, and he tempts us to believe our identity and what we do and who we are and popularity and what we have, and it's good to quote scripture to fight these things, I think the primary thing we need to see is that this scripture is about who? First and foremost, Jesus. Matthew wrote this to show us that Jesus conquered Satan. Not you conquering Satan. Jesus is the one who conquered Satan in this wilderness. It's not you. And so that means a couple different things, and I'm just going to give you one or two of them. The first thing it means is that you can't do it apart from putting your faith in Jesus. So, you can try all of your techniques. You can try to keep yourself away from everything that is evil. You can live in a little bubble. But that's not going to protect you. You're still going to deal with all of these things that are finding yourself, that you find your identity, who you, what you do, who you are, and what you have. Only as you come to put your faith in Jesus and you see what Jesus has freely given you, all of those things. He's given you an identity in what he has done and who he has made you and what he has given you. Will you be able to fight the temptations of the evil one? Number two, it means this. That Jesus has already defeated Satan for you. So that when you fail this week and find your identity in what you do, what does that mean? Jesus already took care of it. Jesus already defeated Satan for you. He's already taken care of your temptation this week. He's already taken care of your, your giving into temptation this week. He conquered Satan for you. And that changes everything. 
For some people, that's scary because they're like, you mean all the sins I commit this upcoming week, Jesus has already taken care of and defeated Satan for me? And they're going to be like, oh, well, then I can go do whatever I want, right? And I'm going to say, absolutely not. If you really believe that Jesus has conquered Satan in the wilderness for you, you're going to want to find your identity in what he has done for you, who he has made you, and what he has given you. That's where the power comes from. The power comes from believing that Jesus has done the work already. It is not dependent on your faith and how strong you are and how morally good you are and how upright you are this week. It depends on the fact that Jesus has already defeated Satan for you. And because of that, he's given you a new identity of his finished work on the cross. He has given you a new identity of a son and a daughter of the living God. And he has already given you everything because all things are ours. So church, when you're tempted this week to find your identity in what you do and what you have and who you are, Remember that Jesus took on this supernatural being and conquered him for you. So Jesus, help us to believe these words this morning. That in Jesus, we have become sons and daughters adopted into the living God's, the living Father's family. That in Jesus, we are identified because of Jesus' work. And that in Jesus, we've been given everything. And so may these truths empower us to fight the lies of the evil one so that we would be a people who love each other and be a witness, a sign, a foretaste of the coming kingdom right now. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.